Please open your Bibles to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, you'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, you'll find the text on the back of the bulletin. This morning, rather than beginning part one of a multi-part series, we're just going to deal with one text, one event, one miraculous healing on behalf of Jesus, and we will hopefully see the glory of our Lord. We will conclude John chapter 4 this morning with Jesus healing the nobleman's son. So if you're in John 4, I'd like to invite you to read with me verses 45 to 54. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Lord God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see. John has written these signs that we might believe that your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the Son of God and the Christ, and that by believing we have life in his name. I pray that you would accomplish your life-giving work and purpose in this gospel this very morning. And for those of us who, who are alive in you, that you would increase our faith, that we would go from faith to faith, believing to believing, that we might be strengthened um, by the glory revealed of your Son and your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus heals the nobleman's son. I'll, I'll be honest and acknowledge that this passage is, is confounding. There's a lot of questions this text brings up, a lot of elements that can be confusing. Let me highlight a couple of them. We began at the end of last week's message to consider the transition to um, Cana and to Galilee. Verse 43, after two days, he departed for Galilee. And then the formal translations, backing what the Greek says, give the reason why. Verse 44, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. So we've got to unpack the rationale there. Why did Jesus not stay longer at Sychar with the Samaritans? They're asking him to remain with them. Well, he left because he had said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And because he had said that, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. It's not immediately obvious. Another difficulty or strangeness of this text is that Jesus' rebuke to the Um, the nobleman, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. 
is not actually borne out in the nobleman. He doesn't see a sign in the wonder, and the text tells us he believed what Jesus said. So what are we to make of that? It's, it's a strange text. There, there's some strangeness to it, and I hope as we work through it, we'll be able to understand what's going on. John is subtle. He is he's an excellent writer, and I think it will become clear. Um, but let's begin by Jesus arrives in Galilee. Jesus arrives in Galilee. Now, this is significant because we've really spent an entire chapter getting here. If you go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 1, we read in the first few verses, Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And then the stop in Sychar is incidental. It's on the way to Galilee. So, beginning of chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples are moving from the Judean countryside to Galilee. And then we get sort of an aside, the extended narrative of Jesus and the woman at the well, Jesus and the Samaritans at Sychar, and now finally we're arriving in Galilee. Interestingly now, we're finally syncing up with the other Gospels. In, in John chapter 3, you may remember, um, verse 24 has an interesting aside, helping to identify where these events take place. And John 3.24 tells us, for John had not yet been put in prison. John, the gospel writer, is aware of the other gospels. He's aware that the material he's relating isn't replicated in those gospels. And he's helping us to situate where these things took place. When, when did all this stuff, well, this is before John was arrested. This is before John was arrested. Now, in Mark's gospel, I'll just read to you, Mark 1.14, Jesus' public ministry begins this way. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. I think this entrance into Galilee here in John 4 is likely that same event, which means everything we've seen with Jesus and the disciples, Jesus at the wedding at Cana, Jesus in the temple, Jesus with Nathaniel, Jesus with Nicodemus, takes place before... Mark picks up with Jesus' public ministry. So we're finally, I believe, synchronizing with the other Gospels. That's, that's significant. But let's look at point A first. Um, the Galileans give Jesus a superficial welcome. The Galileans give Jesus a superficial welcome. Now, wh- why say that? Because it's the only way I can make sense of John's connecting, um, coordinating conjunctions. We're told, and we dealt with this at the end of last week, I'll reiterate it now, that Jesus did not stay with the Samaritans. They wanted him to remain with them. And I'll remind you again that the the response that Jesus got in Sychar was the only unqualified, unresisted, total success in Jesus' entire public ministry in John's gospel. This is the only place where there was no opposition. There were no opponents. Where as far as we can tell, everyone or virtually everyone in the town believed sincerely, genuinely. There's not a detracting comment from them. It's only commendable. It's only good. And they want Jesus to remain with them. And he doesn't. He stays two days. Why? Why does he not stay where he's loved, where he's received, where he's believed? Well, because Jesus had testified, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And I argued last week, and I'll argue again this morning, that what that means is this. We know that Jesus knows that he's come to die. He said to Nicodemus, he must be lifted up as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Jesus has before him and before his eye in John's gospel, his hour. He tells Mary when she comes and tells him they're out of wine, my hour has not yet come. 
He speaks to the woman at the well of an hour that is not yet here. And then starting in chapter 12, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, the hour is the cross. Jesus has before him the hour of his suffering. And he knew and he had testified that a prophet gets honor except in his hometown. The Samaritans were never going to crucify Jesus. The Samaritans were never going to reject Jesus, at least this town of Samaritans. And so he departed precisely because their reception was so honorable. And so he went to his homeland, his home country, he went to Galilee, precisely because that is where he would be dishonored. Which then makes it interesting when the text says, so they welcomed him. Well, that would seem to go against what I just said. Except I think as we read the text, it becomes clear that this welcome is hollow, is superficial, it's lacking. Let me read again a quote from D.A. Carson on this. Jesus himself has declared that a prophet has no honor in his own country, unlike the reception he enjoyed in Samaria. And he determines and knowingly heads in that direction. Therefore, when he arrives, the Galileans welcome him, not as Messiah, but because they had seen all that he had done at the Passover feast in Jerusalem. John has already let his readers know how Jesus views that kind of faith that kind of welcome. The details of the healing that follow make the same point. What this means is that when John tells us that the Galileans welcomed him, the context he develops shows that here, and so often, he is writing with deep irony. So look at how he describes this. Let me show you why I think that's the case. When he came to Galilee, and then John reminds us of what's come before. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Now keep your finger here and turn back to chapter 2. This is, a, this is a callback to the end of chapter 2. This is also part of the reason why we spent an entire week looking at these three verses in chapter 2. The first introduction of this theme of something insufficient, something superficial, something lacking from a faith that's purely dependent on miracles is introduced here. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his own part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. I suggested to you when we studied this, that was supposed to surprise us. Contrary to what is said in chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Here we're told people believed in his name and Jesus did not entrust himself to them. I further argued that Nicodemus then becomes an example of this. He shows up, he's seen signs in 3.2. Rabbi, we know that unless one is born again, he can't, oh, sorry, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Entirely orthodox, woefully insufficient, lacking, hollow. And I'm suggesting the Galileans welcome is similar, that this connection to Jerusalem and the miracles lets us know that the Galileans are in a similar boat, a similar status as those people at the end of chapter two, as Nicodemus himself. They're impressed by Jesus. They've paid attention. They've seen that he's worked miracles. That's got their attention. There's some level of enthusiasm and there's some hollowness to it. The fact that Jesus rebukes the region later in this passage, I think makes that even more abundantly clear. The unless you see signs and wonders is a plural you. Jesus isn't merely speaking to the nobleman. He's speaking about the region. 
So the fact that Jesus himself expresses some disdain, displeasure, to, to a faith that demands miracles, again, helps reinforce the notion that this welcome that they give him that's entirely dependent on miracles is a hollow welcome. The reader is supposed to understand that this isn't as good as it may appear. So it's a superficial welcome. And Jesus came to Galilee. And then, specifically in Galilee, we read, he came again to Cana in Galilee. And then we get another reminder of this miracle. It's where he had made the water wine. We're back where we started in chapter 2. In fact, this text this morning closes out a pretty significant chunk of John's gospel. To give you an idea of where we're at in John, I suggested if you wanted a a very simple three-point outline, chapters 1 to 12 would be Jesus' public ministry taking place over three or four years, depending on whether or not the unnamed feast in 5-1 is a Passover. If the feast in 5-1 is a Passover, it's a four-year ministry. If it's not a Passover, it's three-year ministry. So Jesus' public ministry, three or four years, chapters 1 to 12. Chapters 13 to 17 takes place in one night, and it's Jesus in the upper room with the disciples, and it's Jesus' private ministry, three or four hours. And then 18 through 21 is Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, post-resurrection appearances, three or four weeks, roughly, which is a loose way of understanding. So we're in that first section, 1 to 12, public ministry, and we're about to shift out of what some commentators call the Cana cycle into the feast cycle. Starting in chapter 5, Jesus' ministry and activity revolves around the Jewish feasts. Four of them show up. And Jesus' activity is seen around them. So this is closing out that section, that first section of Jesus' public ministry. And it's really the high point of Jesus' public ministry. We see the most, um, the most evidence of people coming to faith, that's what, what primarily dominates here is a little bit of opposition. But starting in 5, starting in chapter 5, for the first time we're going to read people trying to kill Jesus. Starting in chapter 6, mass defections, massive amounts of would-be disciples leaving and abandoning Jesus. Controversy in the temple in 7 and 8 as he goes up and preaches during the Feast of Booths and people are speculating he is a demon now, the, the opposition really starts to rise starting in chapter 5. So we're closing out a section, and John's linking back to the beginning of chapter 2. He returned to where he'd done miracles. He returned to where he turned the water to wine. This is letting us know we're closing out a section. It's, it's a literary feature. So Jesus arrives in Galilee. The Galileans give him a superficial welcome, and then he returns to Cana where he had performed his first sign. Um, John's going to close this account. The last verse of chapter 4 is going to parallel 2.11. Turn there really quickly just so you can see how he puts these two accounts up as bookends. 2.11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Then go back to 4.45. This, now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. You see how he's put these things up side by side? They're paralleled. So this is closing out a section. Jesus returns to where our narrative started with him, with his public ministry. And his second sign will take place precisely where his first sign took place. That's, that's, the, that's sort of the context setting this up. So Jesus has returned. He's returned because he's come to be rejected. And the, the Samaritans in Sychar aren't going to reject him. He's got to go to his homeland if he wants to be rejected. So he returns. And so because of that, they welcome him, but in the way that the attentive reader gets is lacking, is superficial, is a little hollow. I'm not saying it's corrupt. 
Similar to Nicodemus. Everything Nicodemus said was, was orthodox. Everything Nicodemus believed about Jesus was good as far as it went, but as Jesus interacts with Nicodemus, it becomes clear it doesn't go nearly far enough. I would say something similar is going on here with Galilee. And if you're patient, in, in chapter 6, he'll be back in this region of Galilee, and I think it'll become explicitly clear what's lacking with the Galileans' faith, why it is that they demand signs, what's wrong with that. But for now, we know there's, there's something hollow here. There's something insufficient. There's something um, lacking. Okay. Which then brings us to an urgent plea and a strong rebuke. An urgent plea and a strong rebuke. When this man, so at Capernaum, there's an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. So this official, probably a Herodian official, He's got some amount of wealth. He's got servants who come and talk to him. This, this man hears Jesus has come. He's a Galilean, and he's in Caperna. And he hears that Jesus is returned to the area, and so he comes. He comes urgently. You can, you can imagine the concern he has. His son, we're going to find out in a little bit, is on the point of death. Uh, I, I, I've had children become sick, had to take them to the hospital. You know, I have a taste of just how concerning it can be for a child to be unwell, let alone a child at the point of death. This, this, nothing in this account suggests this man's concern is anything but sincere. This is a father who loves his son, a father concerned about his son. He hears that Jesus, the miracle worker who did miracles in Jerusalem, has returned, and he hot-foots it to Jesus. And he comes to Jesus, and the, the Greek text is even clear. It's not he pleaded. He was pleading. He was in the act of pleading. He, he was repeatedly pleading. In other words, he didn't just come and say, please come. He was, you can imagine, please come, and he just keeps reiterating it. He was pleading with Jesus to come down and heal his son. So what does he want? He wants Jesus to leave Cana, to come with him, and go down to Capernaum. It's presumably something you can walk in a day. At the end of the uh, account of Jesus turning the water into wine, Jesus and his mother and his disciples went down to Capernaum and stayed there for a while. So it's accessible. He wanted Jesus to go with him and to heal his son. And we learned that his son was at the very point of death. This is urgent. This is critical. You can't argue that this is a small matter and why are you wasting the rabbi's time. This is life and death. This is a father concerned about his son's life, coming, hearing that Jesus, the miracle worker, Jesus, the one who did all the signs in Jerusalem, has come, and he comes to Jesus, and we can quite sympathize and understand how he might repeatedly be pleading, please, please, please come with me. Please come down to Capernaum. Please come. My son is at the point of death. To which Jesus issues a rebuke. Jesus issues a rebuke. Jesus rebukes the Galileans to the nobleman. Now, why, why do I phrase it that way? It's a little clunky. Well, the ESV doesn't bring out the fact that, that the you here is plural. Uh, I, I think other translations do. Jesus' rebuke is not primarily directed at this nobleman. It's directed to him insofar as he's a Galilean, I suppose. But the rebuke is given generally to the Galileans at large. It's rebuke that will become clear in chapter 6 when the Galileans come to Jesus after he's just fed them with miraculous food the day before, and they say to him, well, what sign will you do? The, the Galileans... Demand for signs will become clear in chapter 6. But here, we realize Jesus is aware of it and Jesus doesn't like it. 
Jesus says, unless you all, unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not believe. Now, the reason why I say he's rebuking the Galileans to the nobleman is the nobleman's actions indicate this doesn't describe him. We're going to see, surprisingly, this rebuke doesn't describe the nobleman. So Jesus is rebuking the region, and the nobleman's a part of the region. So insofar as he's a Galilean, Jesus can issue the rebuke to him. But his rebuke is not really going to land on him because he's going to show himself to be an exception. So then why would Jesus issue this rebuke to him? There's no indication there's a crowd. I guess when I first read this, I imagined there's a big crowd. Nothing in the text says that. Well, I think, and here's your your blank, he was warning the nobleman. He was warning the nobleman. And I think it's a warning the nobleman heeded. Jesus, who knows what's in man, who knows what's going on in the inner workings of man, issues this nobleman a warning. It's a general rebuke to the region that will be resolved in chapter 6, and it's a warning to this man, to which we then have to stop and say, okay, what is the rebuke? What is it that is displeasing to Jesus? Clearly, Jesus is displeased. He's exasperated. He's, He's expressing some displeasure at a people that simply will not believe without signs or miracles. And it's not as simple an answer as you might think, because already in John's gospel, we have examples of people coming to faith through miraculous events that Jesus commends. Turn back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, we have Nathaniel, right? And Nathaniel is initially um, skeptical that Jesus could be the Messiah. Does anything good come out of Nazareth? And when Jesus meets him in chapter 1, verse 47, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming towards him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Which is a supernatural. He's evidencing knowledge he shouldn't have had. This is miraculous knowledge, unexplained knowledge. To which Nathanael says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And then, so that we're not in any doubt about what to make of this, And is it a good thing or a bad thing? Jesus said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. So Nathaniel's faith was prompted by an evidence of miraculous knowledge. Then in chapter 2, at the end of the uh, turning the water into wine, verse 11, we looked at it just briefly before, but look at it again. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Jesus' miracle of turning the water into wine increased the faith of his disciples. That can't be a bad thing, especially when you bear in mind John's stated purpose in writing the book. Why does the gospel of John exist at all? John tells us, John 20, 30-31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which were not written in this book. But these signs have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wrote a book relating specifically chosen signs that you and I might believe and by believing have life. So it can't be as simple as signs are bad 
and faith that's generated or strengthened by signs is bad. If that's the case, then whatever Nathaniel does is bad. What the disciples do at Cana is bad. John's purpose in writing is bad. That can't be it. So then we've got to be a little more nuanced. What is, what is Jesus rebuking? What is Jesus displeased by? And I think the key is his word, unless. I think the key issue is a faith that requires a sign to believe. Or to put it more strongly, a, a heart that says, I simply won't believe. I refuse to believe unless I see a sign. I must have a sign to believe. I, I think that's the, the problem. I think a faith that requires, demands signs, is not faith. We see already a hint of that in, in John chapter 2 when Jesus cleanses the temple and the Jews neither condemn what he does nor um, approve of what he does. What they say is in 2.18, what sign do you show us to do these things? That's the first mark that maybe that's not great. In chapter 6, when we get there, the next day after he's fed the 5,000, they, they cross the Galilee, they go around to find him, and they say to him, what sign will you do? He just did the sign yesterday. And they want him to do the same sign again, because they say, hint, hint, our fathers ate man in the wilderness. That was a good sign. And so we're going to see in chapter 6 what a faith that requires, demands signs. And part of it is a faith that demands signs will keep demanding signs. Um, if, if, you, if you're sitting here saying, well, if God would show himself to me, if God could sit down and have a cup of coffee, I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. Or if you did, you'd need him to do it the next day, and then the next day, and then the next day. Jesus, in, in Luke's gospel, told the parable, or the story, depending on how you take it, of the rich man of Lazarus. And you remember the rich man in, in Hades, in torment, pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus back to warn his brothers. And Abraham says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't believe if someone rises from the dead. Faith that demands signs, a faith that wouldn't exist without a sign. A faith that can only exist with a sign is, is not a faith that pleases Jesus. I, I think that's the, the, the resolution here. Um, Jesus' rebuke would be to a faith that requires a sign, that simply will not believe without a sign. In response to Jesus' rebuke, the nobleman is undeterred. He persists. The nobleman persists. Come down before my child dies. And again, that's why I don't think this rightly lands on him. Now, it's a warning. I think we'll see in just a moment. It's a warning to the nobleman. Jesus is loving the nobleman by issuing this warning. So the nobleman comes to Jesus. He's pleading with him. He's pleading with him. Jesus vents his frustration, his disappointment, his vexation at the Galileans. Um, The nobleman just keeps pleading, please come down before my child dies. Time is of the essence. This is a theme that will recur in John's gospel. In John 11, when Jesus shows up to um, the tomb of Lazarus, both of Lazarus' sisters highlight the fact, look, if you'd been here in time, if you'd shown up in time, Lazarus, my brother, wouldn't have died. Well, this man is caught up with the same concern for time, which, again, I think we can all sympathize with. And nothing in the text suggests there's anything wrong with this man's concern for his son. So then we go to a gracious gift and a growing faith, a gracious gift and a growing faith. Now what Jesus does here is subtle. It's gracious. What the man wants 
is Jesus, the miracle worker, to come with him, Jesus, the miracle worker, presumably to enter his house, and Jesus, the miracle worker, to lay his hands on his son and heal him. And what Jesus says to him is this, go, your son will live. Notice, no confirmation is given other than Jesus' word. This is how this fits into the rebuke. Okay. In other words, I'll give you what you want in principle, but not the way you asked for it. And it's going to determine and hinge on whether or not this man will receive Jesus' word. We've already seen him unceasingly pleading with Jesus. Plead, come. Jesus issues a rebuke. The man just, please come, please come, please come. Go, your son is well. Now this man has to decide, will Jesus' word be good enough for him without any sign, without any miracle? It, let's face it, it's an easy thing to say, your son will live. Go. And if Jesus proves to be wrong, the man will be a town or so away when he finds out. Right? You can imagine the doubts that could creep into your mind. It's easy to say, what if you're wrong? Wouldn't it be better if you just came with me? And then, then there won't be any mistakes. And this man shows us what genuine faith looks like because he, he, he believes. So Jesus grants his desire, but not his specific request. As is often the case with us, we want God to do something and we know how we want him to do it. And the man's concern itself, Jesus is compassionate. Jesus cares for his people. Jesus gives him what he truly desires. Your son will live. But he does it in a way that forces this man to to grapple with and resolve, is Jesus' word enough? Is Jesus' word sufficient? No sign, no miracle, no confirmation. I'm doing it differently than you asked. What are you going to do? This man believes and this man obeys. I think it's remarkable. And it's a gospel that's commending faith for us. And a gospel that's putting forward and showing us what saving faith looks like. There's a lot to learn from this man. The man believed Jesus' words and went home. He believed without needing a sign. No sign. I mean, we have even examples in the Old Testament of a prophet giving a promise and, and a sign to confirm it. Hezekiah is sick and he's told to be given more time. And Okay, well, what sign do you want? How's about the shadow moves backwards on your... That, that whole thing is about, well, how, how do I know, prophet? I can take your word seriously. This man doesn't ask for that. Unlike Gideon, who wants the, the ground to be dewy and the, the skin to be dry and then the reverse. No, this man takes Jesus at his word, stops pleading, and immediately acts upon what Jesus says. How do we know he believed? Again, this gets back to faith's connection with works. How do we know this man believed Jesus? Because he left We know he's overcome with concern. We know he's been pleading with Jesus. We know if he wasn't convinced that Jesus was trustworthy, he'd still be there pleading with Jesus. No, no, my my plan's better. Come with me. And he left. That's faith. He believed without a sign. He trusted Jesus' word, and he acted upon it immediately. Don't, Don't miss that. Jesus rebukes a faith that demands a sign. And this man evidences a faith that doesn't demand a sign. Like the Samaritans before who'd heard Jesus' word and became convinced, this man took Jesus at his word that was good enough for him, and he left. And then we notice point C, the man's faith increases. The man's faith increases. Let's read 
As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come home, come from Galilee, Judea to Galilee. Sorry. So the man's faith increases. So he's, he leaves, and he's got to get through a number of hours just trusting Jesus. Well, finally, he sees a servant coming to him. I can only imagine, is this good news or bad news? But the servant tells him the good news. Your son is getting better. Well, the man wants to verify. Well, when, when did he start to get better? And the servant tells him the hour the son got better, and he realizes that's the exact hour Jesus told me that. And even though we've been told he believed already, it's, it's reinforced. It's, again, in John's gospel, we get this in numerous places. We go from faith to faith. The man believed in verse 50, and yet clearly in verse 53, he himself believed in all his household. This is a growing, stronger faith. And in John's gospel, even though a faith that demands signs is a bad thing, frequently genuine faith can be strengthened by, encouraged by signs. And that's what we see here. This man had genuine faith before there was a sign, and now that there's confirmation to the miracle, his faith is increased. His faith grew when the healing was confirmed. His faith grew when the healing was confirmed. And by clear implication, he testified about this to his family. He testified to his family about Jesus because we get the next phrase, and all his household. Well, how would his household learn about this? He, he told them. So bear in mind, in, in John's gospel, before we get to the ginormous crowds, and they're coming, they're coming, uh, very quickly, if you, if you read the Gospels in Jesus' ministry, especially in Galilee, the crowds become so large that he has to like, flee from them to get away. They're just ginormous crowds. But isn't it interesting that in John's Gospel so far, all the evangelism has, been, evangelism has been personal. All that we've seen, at least. We get the reference to he was baptizing. But the only snippets we've actually seen are, are John the Baptist pointing to Jesus and two people hearing and going to Jesus. Jesus' disciples, one by one, grabbing their friends, bringing them to Jesus. The woman at the well going into her town and telling them, and here a man tells his household. All, all the witnessing, in other words, has been done relationally to friends, to family. And, and John is highlighting this, the, the impact of that. You can be a faithful witness to your household. And this man's household believed. And yes, I think this is saving faith. I think in the context of John's gospel, just as in in the miracle of the water turning to wine, Jesus' disciples saw his glory and they believed. And John wrote this gospel so that we would see the signs and we might believe. It's clear in, in John 2.11 that what Jesus' disciples do in response to the miracle, John would have us do. I think it's equally clear here that what this nobleman and his family did in response to seeing this sign is what John would have us do. And consider the magnitude of this sign. There's, there's another irony here. Even as the Galileans want signs, and what the noblemen envisioned would have been spectacular. It would have been dramatic. The rabbi comes and he follows him and he goes down to Capernaum. He enters the home. He lays his hands on the child. He prays. Now, none of that happens, but to those who see and understand, something greater happened. Why? Well, because Jesus, in doing this, evidences first, he knows who his son is. 
He doesn't need to meet his son. He doesn't need to be introduced to him. He knows who he is. He knows where he is. He knows what's wrong with him. Doesn't need to diagnose it. Doesn't know, need to know which root or ointment or prayer needs to be brought out. He's not constrained by geography. This is a distance healing. I mean, how much more power is evidenced by Jesus in Cana? Your son will live. Healing from a distance. And there's no ceremony. There's not even a prayer. Jesus heals the nobleman's son without even praying. Think of the power that indicates. It gets back to the power of Jesus' word. The one who is the word of God, who spoke creation into being, says your son will live, and reality conforms to this declaration. Guess what? The son lives. That's the power of our Messiah. He's not constrained by geography. He doesn't need to be present. He doesn't need to be introduced to who this kid is. He knows all this. So even as what he does to those standing by and watching is less spectacular, there's no lights, there's no explosions, there's no shock and awe, as we consider what's done, it's far more powerful, far more impressive than if he'd done what the nobleman had asked, right? This is a healer who knows all, who's all-powerful, who's not constrained by geography, who doesn't need to do an incantation or a ritual or even a prayer. He just says, your son will live and the son lives. And the, and, the, and the man, presumably, the penny drops as he's considering this, and his faith has increased. He tells his family, and, and their faith is created by this report. He testified about this to his family. Which brings us then to the closing line of John's gospel very quickly here. Not John's gospel, John chapter 4. This now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. We're, we're closing out a section. It's interesting that all of chapter 4 has had Jesus moving towards Galilee. He's been moving to Galilee. He finally gets there. And all we get is this one account where Jesus ushers or issues a rebuke to the Galileans. And then look at 5.1. We're back in Jerusalem. After this, there's a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And starting in chapter 5, around um, this unnamed feast, then in chapter 6, we have verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Chapter 7 is the Feast of Booths. Then we get the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah. The the rest of the action in this first section of John's Gospel is going to be centered around, orbiting around the the feast system. We're closing the section out. John is linked to where he started. Jesus says he's related two signs. When he says this is now the second sign Jesus did when he came into Canaan of Galilee, there's two things it could mean and one thing it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean this is the second miracle Jesus ever did. Why? Because John's gospel has already alluded to multiple miracles he did in Jerusalem. We saw that at the end of chapter 2. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem, many believed in his name, seeing the signs he was doing. Nicodemus comes forward and he speaks of multiple signs that Jesus has done. John hasn't told us what they were. So, this is now the second sign Jesus did when he'd come from Judea to Galilee is one of two things. Either this is the second miracle Jesus did in Galilee, that's possible, or what I tend to think, this is the second sign John cares to relate. Again, if you go back to the end of John's gospel, when he tells us his purpose in writing, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. John 20, 30, and 31. But these... 
these signs are written so that you may believe. In other words, John tells us he culled a large list of signs and he hand chose these signs. And I tend to think now, this is, this is now the second sign John's relating that he wants us to consider and look at. This is the second miracle. So whether, it's, whether you take it as the second miracle done in Galilee or as I tend to prefer, this is now the second sign John has related that he wants us to consider I bring you back to John's purpose in writing. He's told us this account that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. And so John would have us imitate the nobleman, imitate the nobleman's son, see the glory of Jesus here, the mercy of Jesus here, see his power and authority over sickness and death, see his mercy and his kindness, and Hear the rebukes of the Galileans. Resist the urge that if God does these things for me, then I'll believe in him. And and come face to face with the Messiah and his word and believe it and receive it and be willing to act upon it and have life. Uh, Let's pray as we prepare to transition to a time of communion. Lord God, we, uh, we rejoice that our Savior is so powerful, so holy, so good, so loving. And he doesn't always give us what we ask for, but he gives us what we need. I pray that you would give us a faith to trust you, to take you at your word, not to require to walk by sight, to be willing when you deem fit for us to walk by faith, that we might um, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we have life in his name, that we might behold the glory of your Son in this sign that we might see how it points to and declares who he is, what kind of Savior he is, and that we might worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.